This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, March 19th and 20th coming up. You know who goes to Room Now Live? People who love rheumatology and want to learn. Second, rheumatologists who don't want to miss out on the important stuff, the FOMOs, fear of missing out. It's a big driver in some people. And then the handicaps. They're not coming. Who's Andy Cap? Andy Cap's a cartoon character. My favorite line from Andy Cap, the cartoon, is Andy's asked, he's kind of like a crotchety old Londoner pub guy. And at the pub, he gets asked, Andy, what do you think of ignorance and apathy? And Andy says, I don't know and I don't care. Meaning, Andy Cap's not coming to our meeting because he doesn't know he don't care. That's not you. We'll see you at Room Now Live. Today's case is shared decision-making or what do you do when the patient doesn't want to take the medicine? So this is a 36-year-old man who I've been taking care of for a few years. He has psoriasis since uh, about nine years, psoriatic arthritis for the last three years. He's been treated with uh, non-steroidals and a brief foray with methotrexate. Done well for almost three years on adalimumab. He comes in today because he's not doing quite as well as he used to do. He has no other significant past medical history. really doesn't take any other medicines. Um, And today he comes in because he's not doing well. And turns out that he's not doing well maybe because he stopped his medicine six weeks ago. Why did he stop his medicine six weeks ago? Well, insurance issues, you know, money, insu- uh, pharmacy, whatever. Um, but the bottom line is he's probably not wanting to take the medicine. And, has been, and when you ask further, you find out he has been spacing out his injections and not taking the adalimumab as he probably su- should take. So what are his medicines that he takes? He really just takes a probiotic, adalimumab, and... You know, he has some cream that he doesn't use um, generally. Um, He's big into diet. He thinks that an anti-inflammatory, low-gluten diet has really helped him quite a bit. And he thought that that was going to sustain him if he went off of his um, adalimumab or took less adalimumab. So, not surprisingly, taking less adalimumab, he's taking a little bit more over-the-counter ibuprofen, using more topical steroids. Um, He's not doing well. On exam, when you examine him, his skin is active. He has psoriatic plaques in his scalp behind his ear and also uh, at the crack of his butt. Nothing in the umbilicus or nails or elbows or other usual spots, meaning you'd have to look to find it. Second, his joint exam is not great, but not too bad. He has three tender joints, no swollen joints, no enthesitis. So the question is, what are you going to do? The rest of his exam is normal. Um, His labs recently done were normal. He doesn't have inflammatory markers that you would be concerned about. But he's got some active disease and he's got some more joint complaints. If you look at his his, um, joint scores, um, I do a gas score. It's like a C-DI score. You know, the numbers over the last you know, eight, eight, um, eight numbers times, that's basically four years, are like um, six, three, three, two, four, two. You know, the last, what, six of them. 
meaning that he's got low-grade activity, but then he admits to not necessarily taking all his medicine all the time. He's one of those folks who thinks, you know, Doc said I could space it out a little bit. Let me see how little I can take. I think he's one of these folks who probably wants to believe my disease isn't real, and if I hope hard enough, it might go away. Well, unfortunately, it's not that easy. And also that maybe the dietary um, help he's getting isn't helping quite enough. So he needs to restart something. He knows it. His, his, um, his skin, his scalp, you know, are saying that. His joints are saying that. And what are his options? Number one, let's stop the biologic and go back to the non-steroidals and see. Do you remember what that was like three years ago? He says, I don't want to go there. Number two was an option. Let's restart the medicine that was working well for us. You know, took us from six down to zero. Six, three, zero, I think was the numbers that he had on, on joint scores. Um, and no skin involvement. Let's go back to that. But it requires you to be compliant with the medicine. Um, starting out every um, week just to get started. And then we'll go to every other week. Um, and then you can't space it out as you wish to or want to. Or go to option number three. Give him a drug that maybe he doesn't have to take so often. You know, some of the newer IL-17 or IL-23 inhibitors you can get around to taking once a month. Um, or once every two weeks, depending on what he needs. So give him that option and see what he thinks. What do you think the guy chose? Did he go back to the one that he's familiar with? Or did he go with the new one with the promise of maybe taking less drug? That's right. He went back to the one he's familiar with. Dance with the one that brung you, meaning people are adverse to change. Interestingly, didn't plan this, but we have a nice session on that on the first day at Room Now Live. Caleb Michaud from University of Nebraska-Omaha is going to talk about drug adherence and unwillingness to change therapies by patients. He studied that inside of the forward data registry. So... Um, we wished him well. We put him back on drugs. He did fine. He got better control of both his skin and his joints. And we'll see what he does going forward. The good news is he has options. The good news is he had choices here and giving him the choice and discussing with him the consequences of his choices were, I think, important in motivating him to possibly be a better patient. We'll see what happens. Tune in tomorrow for more QD Clinics. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Room Now is brought to you by Room Now Live, where we give you the data, the updates, the insights that you can integrate into your practice. Today's case is what to do with the non-steroidal. 79-year-old woman who has long-standing rheumatoid arthritis, osteopenia. She's taking low-dose methotrexate, 10 milligrams a week, folic acid. She's on a diuretic, potassium, um, what else? Uh, calcium. And she comes in to see you and says that her primary care doctor stopped her non-steroidal and her PPI. She's been taking those for a while. The primary care doctor stopped the non-steroidal because A, she's 79, and B, she's got symptoms of heartburn that are partially controlled by taking a PPI. So the question is, should you be using non-steroidals? This is sort of a, an oldie but goodie topic for me. I started out doing rheumatology research on non-steroidals in 1984. 
um, and that's how I learned a lot about clinical trials, drug safety, etc. And I lived through an era when nonsteroidals were the big boom in drug sales, marketing, advances in medicine. So much so, I think we got as high as 20 nonsteroidals that were FDA approved and on the market. Can you imagine drug companies fighting over which nonsteroidal is better when they're all nonsteroidals and they all kind of stink compared to the drugs that they're fighting over now? So um, this did fairly well. The nonsteroidal business was a multi-billion dollar industry until... Viox and Celebrex were taken, uh, Viox and Bextra were taken off the market. Celebrex re- remained on the market. And I was involved in the FDA hearings back in 2003, three days that looked at um, the safety of nonsteroidals. Did, do nonsteroidals cause heart attacks and strokes and the like? Um, the answer is yes. How often? Pretty infrequent. But nonetheless, the FDA recently affirmed their stance on this. In 2015, they issued a drug advisory statement saying that nonsteroidals do increase the risk of cardiovascular events and strokes, and that you should be cautious in using those drugs, especially in susceptible people and the elderly. The question is, what can you use these days to treat pain? Um, In staffing uh, resident and fellow-run clinics, I've been surprised in the last few years to see how little um, the young docs today are using um, when it comes to nonsteroidals and weak narcotics like tramadol. They're not using any narcotics at all, but even tramadol, they're not using that very much. They're not even really using acetaminophen. And they're managing pain in all kinds of non-medicinal ways. Um, you know, advocating for weight loss, some physical therapy, um, maybe joint injection. Uh, but honestly, pain is often not being managed. Um, and the problem is pain is, is unavoidable. Uh, you know, if your pain is due to an inflammatory condition, treat the inflammatory condition, the pain goes away. But this is often in the setting of a chronic inflammatory condition. So the pain is going to be chronic because damage has been done. Damage to periarticular structures, degenerative changes, etc. So the pain is sort of a, not just a consequence, but now become part of that person's arthritis. A few things that are, I think are worth noting. Number one, nonsteroidals shouldn't be used in the elderly. They shouldn't be used in high-risk individuals. That would include patients with a history of GI problems prior ulcer, if you've had a prior ulcer, never use another nonsteroidal. Not even, don't even use a nonsteroidal with a PPI or a COX-2 with a PPI. It's way too risky. Um, they should not be used in patients who have um, unexplained anemia. They should not be used in patients who have renal insufficiency. Um, the question is, what should you use and what's safe? I was surprised in my review of this recently to see that that actually opioids are way more toxic than are non-steroidals, which are way more toxic than is acetaminophen. It's all not good, is it? So when you look at mortality statistics with non-steroidal use and tramadol use, tramadol and codeine are equal. Tramadol and codeine are 80 to 100% higher rates of 
of mortality. This is all cause mortality, not just non, not just non cardiovascular mortality. Um, and what are we talking about? We're talking about event rates with tramadol of like 36 per 1,000 patient years versus 19 or 11 with a non-steroidal. Um, and so when you're comparing, again, death rates, that opioids are generally higher. The, the, the overall number that's often quoted for non-steroidals, you know, old data, I don't know if you've ever seen this data, but, you know, non-steroidals are associated with 150. 15,000 deaths a year. Uh, and that's data that came about in the late 90s. I, we lived through those. That data was felt to be skewed and an overestimation. Uh, it was based on Aramis data, which was a small data set and then was extrapolated. So the idea that nosterols cause over 100,000 deaths a year is wrong. You do know that opioids in the last 10 years were one of the main drivers for um, the death rates going down in the U.S. population in the last five years. I mean, so the numbers of opioid-related death rates were big and stayed big for a while. Only recently have they started to trend down, and only recently have they been replaced by an increased death rate from COVID. So what you do need to know is that the the estimated number of deaths, you know, in the United States from uh, non-steroidals is 40 to 48 per 1,000 patient years, and almost double that, 72 per 1,000 patient years for uh, opioids. Um, Cox inhibitors are not nearly as high as non-selective non-steroidals. Um, when you look at the cost efficacy, you know, tramadol and Celecoxib may be um, more expensive, but they add little to the picture and probably shouldn't be advocated for unless select, you're in select situations like the patient should be on non-steroidal and has GI risks and you want the, the COX-2 selectivity. What about the renal effects? Um, when you look at tramadol and or non-steroidals being used in patients with CKD, tramadol will do more damage overall when it comes to adverse events and even death then would sporadic use of an non-steroidal. What about post-hospitalization? Elderly patients getting out of the hospital, if they fill a prescription for an opioid versus a non-steroidal, not good. All categories, more deaths with, non, with the opioids, more mortality, um, re repeat hospitalizations, adverse events, falls and fractures with the opioid compared to the non-steroidals. So... Uh, I think that the idea here is that while non-steroidal should be avoided in the elderly, even worse is going to be narcotics, and that in does include tramadol. Um, these are these are sobering bits of information because I'm still getting stuck on what am I left to give, um, and most people feel it's acetaminophen or intraarticular injections, or um, cannabinoids now are getting a lot of talk, but you know CBD oil unregulated, um, not totally safe, and your best safety and prescribing information comes from some guy named Paco who's selling this over the counter off the freeway. Not good. It needs to be studied more. More recently, there has been studies about the use of, uh, of cannabinoid um, uh, and THC showing that there are fairly um, surprising toxicity and adverse events rates associated with that. So they're not really the answer either. I think you're left to lifestyle, weight loss, 
Judicious use of intraarticular injections, which, by the way, have shown to give no long-term benefit, only short-term. And then appropriate dosing with acetaminophen. I'm a big believer in extended release, 650 milligram acetaminophen, where you can use up to three or 4,000 milligrams a day um, with safety in someone who has no prior history of liver disease. So getting back to our patient, no, she shouldn't take nonsteroidals. Yes, she should take and be instructed on how to use, how to use um, acetaminophen wisely and which one to buy. You know, the short-acting 500, 325 milligrams, probably are really not going to cut it. And patients will tell you, it doesn't do anything for me, doc. Again, they're probably not taking enough of it, and it doesn't have a, a duration of effect to be beneficial. So that's potentially. But we really have a big issue with an unmet need in managing pain in a lot of our patients. We need more research. You know, there are new thoughts about pain uh, and how it should be managed, and that's going to be covered at Room Now Live by Tahina Nioji. I'm looking forward to her lecture coming up in two weeks. We'll see you there. Talk to you tomorrow. Hi, this is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. We need experts like you. Go to roomnow.live and register. Yesterday's case that I'm going to talk about today is the differential diagnosis of tenosynovitis. All right, think about it. What's the differential diagnosis of tenosynovitis? You must know this. Surely you've got one, two, three. Are you kind of stuck at three? Is there a fourth, ninth, and twelfth? Well, let me tell you my story, and maybe you'll help me with this diagnosis. 70-year-old, kind of light skin, dark skin person, or a light shade of dark skin person, uh, male, uh, says he's from Ethiopia, I believe him. And um, he uh, has been in this country for a number of years, and he presents with a three-month history of left shoulder, left elbow, left wrist pain. That's it. He says it's kind of sore. And he kind of, you know, points the whole arm, but it's mainly up here and mainly when he uses it. And I'm thinking, gee, if it was bilateral, seven years old, um, I'd be thinking PMR, except it's unilateral. And he denies anything with the right shoulder. Plus, he's not white. And when you're not white, my possibility of having PMR goes way down. It's possible. I know you all think you know someone, but this is a white person's disease, right? But anyway, he's got this unilateral pain shoulder, elbow, wrist, and um, he's unclear about swelling or redness, denies fever, denies morning stiffness, there goes PMR, Um, denies any trauma, denies any recent infections, hospitalizations, other medical problems. He has been on a torvastatin for 11 months, um, and his cholesterol is well controlled. he has really nothing else about him that is important. Again, he denies any swelling. He denies any real stiffness. He says that he doesn't take medicine for this because the problem is sort of not so bad on some days, but worse on other days and worse when he uses it. So what happened here? About um, six weeks ago, he went to his family doctor. Same complaints. The family doctor gave him a brief trial of amitriptyline, 10 milligrams, I don't know what that was about. Gave him um, five milligrams of prednisone for seven days. 
He says he got much better on that, but he completed the seven days and never restarted it. Did he get completely better? He doesn't really know. And then gave him a prescription for naproxen 500 BID, and he only takes that like twice a week, one pill. So it's really hard to say what the therapeutic response to any of these medicines has been. When you examine him, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, all other joints are normal. The right side, the lower extremities, spine, neck, etc. Um, his exam is normal. Eyes, lungs, chest, belly, um, skin. Um, the left upper extremity, not so, uh, not so normal. Shoulder has normal range of motion, no pain when I palpate the glenohumeral joint. Elbow, no contracture, no swelling, no pain. Not on the epicondyle, not within the um, articular groove. The wrist, uh-oh, now the story changes. Because so far, the guy's looking like a crackpot with nothing but guess what? The wrist is swollen. And in fact, I'm pretty certain, without having imaging or an ultrasound, that this is largely tenosynovial swelling. You know how you prove that? You have swelling over the dorsum of the wrist and... Um, and when you move the wrist, you get pain. And if you keep the wrist stable and straight, but then flex at the MCPs forcibly to put stretch over the tenos synovium or over the tendon sheaths, and you get pain, that's what happened with him. So, and the tenosynovial swelling is not the kind with decurvanes. It's not um, the uh, abductor pollicis longus or the extensor pollicis brevis that does this. He had a negative Finkelstein's maneuver. But isolated, non-warm swelling. And it's clear. It's one plus. It's not trace here. He doesn't really notice it. When I say, look at this arm, he doesn't really notice it. Going on three months, what's the differential diagnosis? I wrote down a few things. And then I came home after work. Before I did this, I, I um, did a literature search. And my differential was pretty much spot on with a few exceptions. But I, I'm happy with what happened. What's high on the list? I'd like to put PMR on the list, but it's unilateral. PMR can give you tenosynovitis, but again, this is he has no PMR diagnosis, so even unilateral tenosynovitis doesn't really work here. Um, could this be RA? A very odd presentation of RA? Yes, it could, and probably should test for that. But it certainly would be an odd presentation. Um, you could say he has an oligoartic particular arthralgia and maybe one swollen joint would the differential diagnosis therefore not be infection maybe even psoriatic arthritis but no evidence of psoriasis here no family history psoriasis nails look good scalp looks good but could he oligoarticular same as monoarticular could this be an infection well, okay, what are the infections that give you tenosynovitis? Well, there's GC, not likely here. There's uh, hepatitis B and C. There's a range of infections. There's, a, there's acute rheumatic fever. There's TB. He's from Ethiopia. He denies any history of, uh, of TB. There are a number of fungal infections that could do this, strange and atypical mycobacterium, what we now call non-tuberculous mycobacteria, but also chikungunya. I've had another patient from Ethiopia who had chikungunya as a form of polyarthritis. So, um, but also high on my list is CPPD. Not gout, but CPPD can do this. Um, doesn't usually present as pseudo-gout attacks, but it can present as a chronic um, uh, tenosynovitis. 
And then lastly, drug-induced. And um, high on the list, well, any of the drugs that can cause tendinopathy could do this, you know, and that would, I guess, include the, um, you know, the, um, the phloxins uh, and whatnot. But I think that uh, what I found out when, in my research was aromatase inhibitors can do this. And the other drugs are, yes, that's right, statins. He's on a statin. So my plan with this gentleman was to, number one, um, tell him he's got to take something every day and come back to me on drug. Second, I told him to take prednisone 10 a day uh, for two weeks, stop the statin today, come in, do a drive-by, let me look at the wrist. And when he's totally normal, I now can, it can help me with what I'm going to do in the future. Okay. Um, and then after he's done with the steroids, he can take one naproxen a day and we'll see how that does when he comes back in six weeks. Um, this is a free clinic, meaning these folks don't have insurance, nor do they have money. So testing goes on in stages. So I did a CBC, CMP, Cedrate, CRP, Hepi, Hepsi, RF, and CCP. He said he could afford that, I think. Our discounted prices, that was about $110. Now, there's more I'd like to do. You know, it's doing Ancas and B27s and get crazy. But I'm no, I think my next round, if he still has symptoms after steroids um, and stopping this, the statin, uh, I'm going to do a quantiferon. I'm going to do an RPR, a uric acid, um, an SPEP. Um, what else? A chicken gunya ser serology, probably get x-rays, chest x-ray, and x-ray of the hand and shoulder. Might have to do that in the stages because, again, this is all cash business for those who don't have any cash. Interesting case, don't you think? We'll talk tomorrow. Bye. Welcome back to QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Maybe you've heard this joke. The physician knows everything and does nothing. The surgeon he knows nothing and does everything. The radiologist sees everything while he sits in the dark. And the pathologist knows everything. It's just a little bit too late. And then, of course, there's the rheumatologist. We know. Why do we know? Well, because we're smarter than the average doc and we go to roomnow.live. Today's case is doctors in the dark, also known as the dark side of medicine? What? Is it going to be that kind of lesson here? So I saw a, um, a man who was having problems in his hands and had a x-ray done. I didn't have it, but um, I was able to call the radiologist and we went through this. So the person just has chronic hand pain, wrist pain, not any swelling, whatever, but pain over, you know, the wrist, MCP, um, two and three and four. Um, really, that's about it on both hands, one worse than the other. Um, the interesting thing about this is I'm now getting radiologist input by Zoom. So I spoke to the radiologist. We reviewed the x-rays. He showed me the cardinal signs of uh, CPPD, you know, which included, you know, the, the, the drooping or hook osteophyte at MCP2 and 3, um, uh, narrowing at MCP2 and 3 and maybe 4, but sparing of the PIPs and DIPs, 
um, you know, there's always the triangular ligament calcification, but then there's another one that's called the lunate scaphoid ligament calcification that's actually more common. And anyway, good evidence of calcium pyrophosphate and also pericapsular calcification around the, uh, the MCPs. Um, interesting, but what I was really excited about and interested in was my ability to talk to the radiologist virtually. And I think that's where we're going. This is what's happened as a result in the pandemic. You know, the grand old days of rheumatology were when you could do what? You could go and review the x-ray with the radiologist down in the radiology pit. Um, you could go into the pathology um, uh, office, find who's managing the case, talk to the pathology resident or the pathologist, and get the lowdown on the autopsy results or on the sli- and look at the slides. And so you could deal with these people directly. Maybe not so easy in the last three years. And again, Zoom technology being what it is, this is now the new way, the easier way that you can interface with those doctors in the dark. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the radiologists. We're talking about the pathologists, including the ones who do the autopsies. We're talking about dermatopathologists. Um, uh, why not even the dermatologists having the ability to take pictures and share them with the dermatologist real time and talk to them real time on Zoom? It's easy to do, right? You know, it just takes five seconds, five minutes of their time. It might be the best way to communicate, especially with the dermatologist. You could do this with other cognitive disciplines where it's hard to get a consult, hard to get input. Genetics, for instance. Like, why not? And this boils down to maybe the last point I'll make, and that is the future of virtual medicine is not going to be that we're all going to have, you know, virtual clinics, which many of us should. Um, And if you're not, I understand why. Um, But you're part of the past, and those who will do virtual medicine are going to be part of the future. But, and that's a throwdown statement, is it not? But I really want to get to virtual peer-to-peer consultation. I mean, this is being done, you know, especially in places where, you know, rural medicine, where, um, you know, the orthopedist can't go to outer West Texas um, to see patients and whatnot. You can do peer-to-peer consultations, um, and this happens at the Cleveland Clinic all the time. They have highly specialized vasculitis mavens who you, the rheumatologist, can consult with on your case to assess whether or not that patient should be referred to the Cleveland Clinic for a further evaluation. This could very well be the future of rheumatology. Again, I think I want to get really start with resurrecting those relationships with those doctors in the dark who really add a lot to your practice. But think about how this plays out in the next 10 years or more um, and how we can use virtual connections to review um solidify diagnoses, um, uh, solidify our relationships with our peers who we really need that strong relationships with. And I mean the musculoskeletal radiologists, the pathologists, the dermatopathologists, and the dermatologists are really high on my list. So hope you find it interesting or useful. Talk tomorrow.